Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And I've got a rather eclectic mix of stuff in this cinematic episode. We have the award-winning documentary All That Breathes, which was presented as a special screening this week and is a little bit too late to be of any relevance, but I watched it, so I'll review it. There's also the depressingly relevant film about abortion called Jane. The bizarre Afro-futurist musical from Rwanda, Neptune Frost. and. The one reasonably big release this week, with cinemas still full of Black Adam, there is Living, a new English-language remake of Akira Kurosawa's classic film, Ikiru. Now, in the last episode, I also announced that I would be seeing this week the Chinese film Return to Dust, but as it turns out, I didn't. And that is for a very good reason. In a couple of weeks, there is going to be a free screening of Return to Dust, or functionally it is a free screening, and since I very much doubt you're going to be rushing out to the cinema to watch a film about poor Chinese farmers as soon as you hear this, I'm saving my review of Return to Dust for a couple of weeks, because... It is being shown as part of the Discovery Strand at the Little Theatre, past the Picture House chain, which is special screenings every Tuesday of either previews of things which are coming up or very small releases which wouldn't otherwise have been shown at the cinema. But every Tuesday night, there's something a little bit odd as a one-night special screening in the Discovery Strand. And the Picture House chain have organised a sponsorship deal with the Kia car company. So for the rest of the year, these Discovery screenings are free to members, of which I've been a member for about a decade now, since I frequent the Little Theatre quite a lot. So yeah, in a couple of weeks I'll be able to see Return to Dust for free as part of the Discovery strand. So. It seemed pointless making a special trip over to Bristol in order to see it and pay quite a lot for it at the watershed when I could see it for free in a couple of weeks. And that's also going to be the case for one of this week's cinematic releases as well. That's having a free discovery screening in a couple of weeks as well, but I'll be talking more about that later. But in this episode, I'll be reviewing the cinematic films All That Breathes, Call Jane, Neptune Frost, and Living. Cinema Reviews All That Breathes is an Indian documentary which not only won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in the 
World Cinema Documentary category, it also won the Golden Eye at Cannes for Best Documentary. And weirdly, that's an award that's only been handed out since 2015. Really? We've only had seven years of Best Documentary at Cannes? But regardless, All That Breathes won both of those prizes, so it seems a very, very high probability that All That Breeds will at least be on the 15-film long list for documentary feature at the Oscars coming up. So I made the effort to go and see it at this special Discovery screening. It is directed by Shornak Sen, who has one documentary in his past, Cities of Sleep in 2015, which dealt with the homeless community in Delhi. And once again, Sean Axen returns to the marginalised in Delhi with All That Breathes in telling the story of two brothers, Nadim and Saud, who, along with their colleague, possibly family member, it's never quite made clear, but there's another man that helps them, Salik, who honestly seems a little simple. But these three men, have made it their life's mission to rescue the black kite from the incredibly polluted air around Delhi. It is getting so bad that these birds are just falling out of the sky. Sometimes 20, 30 a day are just crashing to the ground out of the polluted sky in Delhi. And it doesn't help that these brothers live very close to an absolutely gigantic landfill. One of the largest in the world, supposedly. And this is where these urban black kites survive, but the pollution is getting to these birds, and they need help. So it is the dream of Nadim and Saud to formalise this bird rescue and build for themselves a bird hospital, a purpose-built section on their roof, instead of just using the garage, which is what they're currently doing in their quote-unquote day job of making soap dispensers. So as Nadim tries to get all the funding for this, and Saud looks after the birds, and he's the one who tends to do the surgery on the birds that need repairing and fixing, The air around Delhi, and particularly around this Delhi landfill, is getting ever more polluted, and these Muslim brothers are suddenly at the centre of religious riots, which spring up thanks to the Hindu nationalism of that lovely person, Narendra Modi. So, can these black kites survive? Can these Muslim brothers survive in the increasingly dangerous and increasingly polluted streets of Delhi? This is a documentary which sets out its stall right from the opening shot of the film. It's late at night and the camera is at ground level, at street level. It seems to be at a crossroads and gradually this camera pans all the way around. I think it might even do a 360 degree spin, although I'm not exactly clear, but it's a long slow pan at street level on a very, very dirty, 
rubbish-filled street in Delhi. And gradually you see more and more garbage piled high on these street corners. And as the camera gradually pans and pans and pans around, you start getting absolutely inundated with rats. By the time this shot ends, the opening shot of this documentary, the screen is absolutely filled with rats eating the garbage on this cross street in Delhi. And that's a type of shot that Sean Aksan returns to again and again and again. There are so many very, very artful shots, many of them slow pans, looking at the filth on the streets of Delhi and also how the wildlife of Delhi is interacting with this garbage and living with this garbage. I mean, over the course of the documentary, we see lots of rats. We see a tiny little turtle who is trying to climb a pile of garbage that's like three or four times the size of this little turtle. There's wild pigs who have to wade through streams which are clogged with political banners because, you know, there's a lot of politics going on in the background of this. There's a mosquito-infested puddle, and you realise that the shot is actually a reflection of the street as, you know, something walks across it, but there's, you know, filled with mosquitoes. The use of reflection is used again and again. I mean, a water butt puddles this little stream that seems to be nearby. Often you have a shot of wildlife and you realise it's actually being reflected, Uh, and, you know, there's little insects and stuff in the water butt that these brothers are using to mix with the and clean the meat that they're getting, you know, the meat offcuts that they get from the local butcher, you know, all the tendons and gristle and stuff. Hey, you don't want it, but hey, my black kites do. So, you know, they get donated these large leftovers from the local butcher and they're washing it and doing it with this polluted water. And that is what Sean Accent seems to be mostly doing. And I'm pretty sure that's what got this documentary that attention at both Sundance and Cannes, is this very artful, artistic approach to filmmaking. It's a very visual story, showing the contrast between the wildlife and the trash, you know, the filth, the horror, the degradation, and seeing it side by side with these wildlife pieces of footage and these brothers who have made it their mission to save the black kite. Which is, on the surface, kind of an odd thing to do, but it started out kind of as a religious piece of charity. You know, these are birds of prey. They will eat away the trash. They will eat away the piles of stuff on this landfill. They will eat away the sin. I mean, there is a, a specific term for it, which uh, I should have made note of, but it, it is supposedly a concept in Islam. I mean, these birds will eat the sin, so we need to take care of them. So they taught themselves to do it. I mean, they weirdly say early in the film, you know, we were teenage bodybuilders. We knew how muscles and tendons work, so we just applied that to the wings and bodies of these black kites. And, I mean, they've got dozens of black kites in this cage on their roof. 
They've also got one or two vultures as well, you know, a, a slightly less common bird of prey in their environment. But, you know, they take in all birds of prey, all raptors. It's weird how these brothers just taught themselves. I mean, one of the odd tangential conversations, you know, you hear in passing as we're just, you know, living in this very tiny, very cramped living space with the two brothers, their families, their father. I think Nadim has a son and a wife, and all of them are living in this pretty small apartment. So you hear over here conversations, me like at one point, a completely random aside, they start talking about Helen Asal, the WWE wrestling events in 1996, which is you know, the most iconic moment in the last 40 years of wrestling when. Mick Foley got thrown off the top of a cage by The Undertaker. It's the most iconic moment in wrestling, probably in my lifetime. And these Indian brothers are just talking about it as they're making these little soap dispensers, which is you know how they make their money, although they're trying to get international funding from international bird rescue. And Nadim's dream is to go to America and study and actually become a professional veterinarian. And, you know, there's conflicts there because Saud seems reasonably content with the way things are now, whereas Nadim wants to expand, wants to be bigger. And no matter the situation, brothers will fight with each other, and that's another thing which comes up in this film. And there's, there's so, so many things in this film, and I haven't even got to one of the more interesting things which is going on in the background, which is the religious tension. Throughout the course of the film, you, you see in the background, and you actually hear over Tanoi's protests in this Muslim neighbourhood of Delhi saying, you know, the government is trying to destroy us. We are trying to be forced out of existence. I mean, this Muslim family actually has a conversation when the Indian government kicks us out. Will we go to Pakistan or Bangladesh? It's not if, it's when. Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist government will kick this Muslim family out of India, a Muslim family which has lived in India for at least two generations. So, yeah, there's all this political rhetoric going on in the background, you know, no Muslim immigrants into India, protests on the streets. I mean, Nadim's wife actually goes to a female-led protest about all this stuff, and Nadim doesn't go, my work is too important, I mean, he's the crusading type, I need to save the black light, I mean, yes, what you're doing is very, very important, but I need to rescue these birds, he's single-minded, crusading dedication to these things, but the fact remains that his wife does go to these protests, and eventually, towards the end of the film, there's outright religious riot, there's people dying there's muslim houses being firebombed there's mosques having their minarets vandalized and this just happens because of narendra modi whipping up hindu nationalist rhetoric and there's a scene where i think it's saud or one of the brothers is on the stoop is on the the doorstep of the house needing to protect his house i mean the actual riots aren't in there particular district but there's no guarantee they won't spread to this district so this muslim family 
is fearful for their life and safety. He sent his family away to the country because it's too dangerous for a Muslim person on the streets of Delhi. And this is almost incidental to the whole story of the documentary, which is very much about you know the pollution and the catastrophe which is coming. I mean, Nadim is very clear. You know, these birds are falling out of the sky is a sign that the world is coming to an end. You know, we are going too far. We need to do something about this, and I'm going to do my little bit to try and help try and save the world. And I've chosen to try and save these black kites, and I will dedicate my entire life to saving these black kites. To the detriments of my family relationships, to the detriments of my relationship with my brother, he's going to do it. And yeah, it's, it's interesting and powerful stuff, but I have to admit that this documentary is not exactly to my taste. I do understand why it's got so much praise and these very, very big awards, but the overly artful, the overly visual way this story has been told, didn't sit quite well with me. I mean, as far as I was concerned, Sean Aksan was spending so much time showing, you know, the beauty and the juxtaposition and the contrast, you know, the absolute filth of this poor region of Delhi and the wildlife that needs to live in the filth. He was so concerned with that that we got a lot of visuals like that, but not quite enough of my taste of the actual story. I mean, the the relationship with the brothers, I mean, I don't think there's enough of the religious conflict in this film. I honestly like to know who this guy Salek is because I'm I'm unclear whether he's a family member, you know, a cousin or something, or whether he's an employee. But he's, you know, the third member of the group and the one who's a little simple minded. So he he does quite often provide some comic relief, you know, <laughs> in as much as you can have comic relief in a documentary. But who is he? I'd like a little bit more detail, a little bit more context, instead of having many, many, many shots of wildlife living in urban filth. Uh, and yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of another award-winning documentary from a couple of years ago, The Truffle Hunter which did win awards. It was on the shortlist for documentary feature at the Oscars. But I honestly wasn't a very big fan of The Truffle Hunters because it felt too artificial, it felt too constructed. I mean, particularly the last shot of the film had to have been, you know, quote-unquote, scripted in a documentary film. I mean, the way that that last shot in The Truffle Hunters was perfectly choreographed perfectly framed perfectly lit even though it was at night it had to have been a setup and that pissed me off honestly and other moments in the truffle hunters did piss me off because they felt too artificial too constructive and that's what i felt with all the breeds i mean these scenes of wildlife and filth together are very, very beautiful. They're very well constructed. The artistry of it is impressive. But it's happened so often that it starts to feel too artificial to my personal taste. So, 
in many ways, All That Breathes is very, very impressive. It does tell a compelling story. It does have compelling characters in it. It has compelling ideas it wants to spread. I mean, not least of which is, you know, the environmental catastrophe which is happening, but also having this religious riot in the background. All of those things are done really well, but it's not what I'm looking for in a documentary that foot to my personal taste. So yeah, other people's mileage might vary, but for me, all that breathes is impressive. It's probably not in the cinemas anymore, but if and when you do see it on streaming, I would say that All That Breathes is a pretty high meh. Next up, we have the campaigning film Call Jane, which is directed by Phyllis Nagy, who is mostly known as a playwright got Oscar-nominated for her screenplay for Carol, and how Todd Haynes did not get a Best Director nomination at the Oscars for Carol is one of the biggest snubs over recent years, but nevertheless, Phyllis Nagy did get an Oscar nomination for Carol, and despite being mostly known as a writer and a playwright, I mean, the only other thing that Phyllis Nagy has directed in the past is an HBO TV movie called Mrs. Harris in 2005, which got some TV attention, you know, Emmy nominations, not Oscar nominations. But yeah, despite the inexperience of Phyllis Nagy as a director and the fact she is almost exclusively known as a writer, Phyllis Nagy did not write this movie. The screenplay comes from Hayley Shaw and Roshan Sethi, who have worked together on the medical dramas, the medical TV dramas, Code Black and The Resident, and now have written this feature film script together. And apparently, they've got a film in pre-production that they've written, which is a biopic of Rosalind Franklin, which, quite honestly, is long overdue. But, yeah, I can't wait for that to come out. But, yes... Hayley Shone and Roshan Sethi wrote this screenplay, which I suppose is tangentially related to their medical backgrounds. I know that Roshan Sethi is a trained doctor before moving over into television. He's actually the partner of Karan Sony, the very funny actor who's in Deadpool and Miracle Workers. And during COVID, Roshan Sethi and his partner... Karen Sony made a film called Seven Days alongside Karen Sony's Miracle Workers co-star Jolene Viswanathan about an Indian couple who are forced to live together during COVID after a blind date that neither one of them are after. I mean, that was on the programme for the 2021 London Film Festival and I very, very nearly bought an online screener for it, but I assumed it would come out at some point and it hasn't. Which annoys me. I think I might actually need to pirate this. Yeah, that does sound cool. But regardless, that's other things that Roshan Sethi has done. But he and Hayley Shaw have written this script called Jane, which is inspired by a real life group of activists in the late 1960s, early 1970s, who were a network 
of women in Chicago who provided illegal abortions. And I don't know which came first, but I believe there was also a documentary about this Jane Network, which played at this year's Sundance Film Festival as well. So, yes, for some reason, stories about having to provide illegal abortions have become very, very popular in 2022. I mean, uh, only earlier this year, we had the French film Happening, which was excellent. The film which here in the UK ended up on Disney Plus called Plan B. Isn't it so surprising that all these stories about abortion have come up right now? At time of recording, well, actually, I'm recording on the day of the US midterm elections, and with any luck, the Democrats will win enough seats that Roe versus Wade will be canonised into actual law and don't have to rely on the very, very right leaning Supreme Court. But anyway, call Jane is disturbingly relevant to the present day, even though it starts in 1968. As a housewife, Elizabeth Banks, is living with her lawyer husband, Chris Messina, in the suburbs of Chicago, with their 15-year-old daughter, Grace Edwards. Elizabeth Banks, despite being a little bit on the mature side, is once again pregnant. But she has medical complications, she has fainting spells, and it emerges that Elizabeth Banks suffers from a very rare condition where her pregnancy is essentially giving her heart disease. And the only way to reliably cure Elizabeth Banks of this cardiomyopathy is to have an abortion. But this is 1968, and abortion is illegal. You can apply for a medical board to grant you an abortion, but that's not going to happen, and I'll be getting back to that sequence in the film in a minute. But Elizabeth Banks is at the end of her rope. So she sees a flyer at a bus stop saying, Pregnant, anxious, call Jane and with a number. So she calls Jane, and it turns out it is this network of women in the Chicago area who provide abortions to those who need it. And Elizabeth Banks, despite being rather small-c conservative and rather judgmental, gets further and further involved in this group of women, this network of women, which is being run by Sigourney Weaver, and eventually becomes very, very involved in the Jane Network and all the things that they are doing for the women of the Chicago area. But abortion is still illegal, and the other shoe is surely going to drop. So, as I was saying, I mean, this is a very timely film. It is a film which goes through the reasons why you need legal abortions. I mean, very much like Happening did earlier in the year. And if you didn't see the French film Happening, directed by Audrey Dewan, that's another excellent film on this subject. Obviously, it's better than this. But Call Jane is still pretty good. Even though it feels much more like a series of bullet points than an actual story. 
the journey that Elizabeth Banks has to go through, the hoops that she has to jump through in order to try and achieve a legal abortion and eventually veering off into illegal abortion, it's absurd, it's heartbreaking, it's aggravating, but it does feel a little bit like these are bullet points that you need to know about. This is what it was like for a woman in 1968. I mean, first, she has to go to the medical board, an entirely male medical board at this hospital, all of whom are smoking. And when they are told, yes, there is a 50% chance of a healthy baby coming out of this pregnancy, that's good enough for them. And they don't even talk to Elizabeth Banks, even though she's in the room. I mean, she specifically says, look, I'm right here. You can talk to me. But no, they're talking to her gynecologist. They're talking to her husband. They are not talking to her. And what about the mother? Does it matter that there's a 50% chance that I will die? And nobody responds. They don't talk to her at all. I mean, this is absurd. So when that doesn't work, they go out of this medical board and the gynecologist or the obstetrician, whichever one it is, says to Elizabeth Banks, well, that didn't work. But of course, if you were suicidal and two psychiatrists said you were suicidal, then we would have to give you an abortion. Wink, wink. And Elizabeth Banks has a huge sigh and said, Yes, Doctor, I'm suicidal. So she has to go through this rigmarole of getting two psychiatrists to sign off on this, which doesn't work. And the second psychiatrist, you know, surreptitiously hands her a note and says, Look, if the other psychiatrist doesn't agree, this is what you're going to have to do. And the receptionist of this second psychiatrist says, Or you could just throw yourself down the stairs. It worked for me. So, I mean, these are the kinds of situations. I mean, this little bit of paper, this scrap of paper that's been handed to her, it turns out it's for a backstreet abortionist. And in order to pay for this, Elizabeth Banks has to forge her husband's signature on his checkbook because she doesn't have a bank account of her own, which was the norm in 1968. So with this surreptitiously gained funds she goes to this you know rough area of chicago into this dirty apartment block with dispassionate and grasping people it's such a a horrible experience that she can't do it she runs out and that's where she sees the the sign saying for jane so i mean this whole sequence of events which is probably the first i know 20 minutes of the film more or less Yes, it's stuff we need to know, but it does feel like bullet points. It does feel like this is not a natural story. This is a universal approach of the kinds of things that women had to do. It just doesn't quite feel natural, at least it didn't to me. And then when Elizabeth Banks gets involved in the J Network, I mean, she is picked up. I mean, once she agrees that, you know, this is what needs to be done, she's picked up by one me, Masako. Uh, who is you know, very sympathetic, very caring, you know, holds her hand, helps her through it. I know this is difficult, but it's the right thing to do. It, exactly the right kind of approach that you need. And you know, the, the procedure is done. And gradually, 
Elizabeth Banks gets more and more involved with Sigourney Weaver and Wanamu Masaku and the other women in this network. And kind of against her better judgment, she starts doing what Wanamu Masaku did for her, you know, picking a woman up, blindfolding her, you know, because you don't want people following you. They say, look, this is what's going to happen. Here is the dark thing. And she gets more and more and more involved. And by the end of the film, personally speaking, I think, it goes a little bit too far in how involved Elizabeth Banks gets. Uh, and again, that's another aspect which doesn't quite feel natural. But what does feel natural it is the, the conflict, both the internal conflict. I mean, should I be doing this? I mean, I am a proper suburban housewife you know, with 15-year-old daughter. I have you know my good life, my lawyer husband. You know, yes, I'm a housewife, but I write better legal briefs than he does. I mean, it's a running gag that Chris Messina, her husband, hands his briefs over to Elizabeth Banks to be rewritten because she's better at it than him, yet she's been a housewife for the last 15 years. And she is you know, the proper right place in society. So there's internal conflicts there. And there's also conflicts within the group because... As happens with so many activist groups, I mean, I've seen this repeatedly portrayed. I mean, very recently in the film Bros, Billy Eichner and all the different aspects of the LGBTQ plus community in that board meeting, each of them trying to corner out their particular, their specific corner of the spectrum and fight for their corner. I've seen it happen in real life in documentary footage from How to Survive a Play with the meetings of ACT UP often descending into people arguing their particular corner and you're not coming to any kind of consensus. So that often happens. I mean, one me, Masako, is black and says, look, why are all the white women getting the abortions? Surely we can help out some sisters. And the fact that because this is you know, an illegal procedure and it costs a lot for you know, the doctor to do that. He turns out to be a much more complicated character than first appears, played by Corey Michael Smith. But everybody's fighting for their particular corners, and nothing's really getting done. And seeing how large groups like this, activist groups like this, can devolve and degenerate into petty squabbling and fighting for your particular corner. And Elizabeth Banks doesn't quite fit into this. I mean, she is the proper housewife. The opening shot of this film, I actually thought was really, really good. It's a shot which I've come to know personally as the Aronofsky. It is a steady cam shot on the back of somebody's head as they're moving about. And we only see you know the back of this person's head moving through the, the environment. And in this particular case, it's Elizabeth Banks you know, with this beautifully coiffed 1960s blonde hair who is walking through a hotel. You know, she's just been to the ladies' room. She's walking through a hotel, going back to her husband's party. I mean, welcome new partners in this law firm that is in the ballroom. But then she goes outside, and this is 1968 in Chicago. So the front of this hotel is absolutely surrounded by police who are protecting this upper-class hotel from the yippies in the 1968 Democratic Convention civil unrest. 
and this is all done in one shot on the back of Elizabeth Banks's head. I mean, so you know, the the prim proper 1960s housewife, and just outside there's ferment on the streets, and I thought that was done really, really well. And she is a very typical housewife. She's a bit of a prude. She's very judgmental to certain of these pregnant women and girls she comes across. I found it notable that when Sigourney Weaver is helping out somebody who seems to be very, very young who needs an abortion, and you know, is do, doing the drawing, you know, this is the vulva, this is the uterus, these are the fallopian tubes, that kind of thing. This is what's happening inside of you. I find it very, very notable that Elizabeth Banks, who, let's not forget, already has a 15-year-old daughter, is kind of looking over Sigourney Weaver's shoulder and, and trying to learn something as well. So this is just what happens in 1968. And, yeah, it, it feels like, bullet points of things we need to know are not necessarily like an actual story and yeah i think everything here is well done i don't think anything's outstanding here the look of the film is very specific this was shot on 16 millimeter you know era appropriate film stock and phyllis nagy does a good job as a director i mean like i said that opening shot on the back of elizabeth Hanks' head is very very good certain other aspects adding to the the drama and the tension and the uncomfortable nature of the process of going through an abortion. It's uncomfortable, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily harrowing. This is not a film which is shows its brutality. I think it's much more about the very, very difficult decisions that these women had to go through and the emotional support that is needed afterwards. The emotional support is needed during. And you know, it's women helping each other. And you know, how this story develops. I mean, the film ends with Gourney Weaver giving a speech in 1973 saying, well, we're shutting up shop because Roe versus Wade has just gone in and we're not needed anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is a, a film which is dealing with very on-topic issues, and in showing those issues, I think they kind of forgot to fully embrace a fully compelling story. It does feel like tick boxes of things you need to know about the abortion argument rather than an actual story about abortion. And that was an issue, but it is still information you do need to hear and see as i said if you don't mind subtitles i think happening deals with somewhat similar subject matters and i think is a better film but call jane is still pretty good it's probably still going to be in cinemas by the time this podcast comes out and for me it is an important reasonably high meh and next we come to Neptune Frost. An Afrofuturist musical, sci-fi film, fantasy film, surreal film from Rwanda. Well, it was filmed in Rwanda. It's set in Burundi-ish or... It's complicated, but 
It was directed by Anisia Uzayman, the Rwandan-born actress and playwright, and her husband, the New York slam poet Saul Williams, who was the lead in the 1998 Sundance-winning film Slam, and is also the credited screenwriter for this film Neptune Frost. And where to begin with Neptune Frost? (laughs) By its very nature, I mean, being very surreal, very abstract, lots of sci-fi concepts, lots of fantasy concepts, it's a little difficult to figure out what's going on. But I will do my best. We start out with two figures. A figure who eventually goes by Neptune starts out as a man and about a third of the way through transitions to being a woman, played by Cheryl Ishaja. And this Neptune intersex character meets up with Matalusa, played by Bertrand Ninterepse, who is a coltan miner who is running away from his illegal coltan mine after his brother, Technology, was killed. He's trying to start a revolution and ends up in a strange place, which might be in a different dimension, might be in some kind of technological bubble. Whatever it is, it's weird. It's very Afrofuturist. I mean, everybody's got metal wires coming out of them. Everybody's got chips glued to them and glues, and as well as bamboo and all that kind of ancient African art. I mean, it's the Afrofuturist blending of everything. But in this strange enclave, eventually Matalusa and Neptune meet up alongside other revolutionaries, Memory, played by Eliane Umahire, Elohel, played by Rameka Mukyo, who has one arm, interestingly, and Psychology, a student protester who's also ended up here, played by Tressor Neil Garbo. So these revolutionaries start a hacking collective, or that seems to be what's going on, and they start affecting all the social media around the world. And this leader, Matalusa, starts being known as Martyr Loser King. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit phonetically similar to a revolutionary from the past? But this Martyr Loser King is suddenly the most wanted hacker in the world, and the colonial forces and the white forces and the technological forces are trying to find this hacker collective and shut them down. And all the time, everybody is performing music. There's a lot of music, there's a lot of rap in this. Most of the major plot points have a song attached to them. And it gets strange. I think the only logical response you can have after coming out of a film like 
Neptune Frost is What the Fuck? This is a film where this individual Neptune seems to be able to affect technology and social media. And let's not forget, about a third of the way through the film, Neptune changes from being played by Elvis and Garbo to Cheryl Ishaja. And the intersex nature of Neptune becomes a plot point. This hacker collective who mostly communicates to each other through music and don't actually seem to have any you know, keyboards or anything. They're just, it's there in the ether and stuff comes up in, on screens. It's some kind of near future, pseudo future. All of this is wild. Visually inventive, visually arresting, but wild and confusing and strange. Lots of discussions here about gender, about the exploitation of Africa by the Western world, the exploitation of Africa by technology companies. A literal line of dialogue in this film is fuck you, Google. There's discussions about the religious exploitation of Africa. I mean, the reason that the male Neptune, Elvis and Garbo, needs to run away is there's an attempted sexual assault by the local priest. It's unclear whether this was an ongoing thing and Elvis and Garbo just had enough or if this was a first-time event, but Elvis and Garbo clearly was giving off vibes because the only thing he grabs as he's leaving his hut for the last time, is a pair of high-heeled shoes, which eventually he wears and Cheryl Shager wears as well. Genders are switched. So there's discussions about gender identity and religion and exploitation and technology. It's important that this revolutionary Matalusa, played by Bertrand Interetze, is mining coltan. And coltan is a mineral ore which is vital in the production of cell phones. It's got rare earth elements in it which are crucial for manufacturing cell phones. Which, you know, technology, the modern technology which we are dependent on today, the modern technology which you are probably listening to me now as I am saying this, depends on coltan most of which comes from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo and Burundi and is on the exploited backs of ill-paid or flat-out slave labour. And this is one of the things which this film Neptune Frost is trying to say, which is you know, an important thing to say. But how many people out there know what Coltan is and why fuck you Google, is a, script, a line in this film. I'm not sure enough people are aware of that to make that plot point relevant, because if you don't understand that Coltan, this thing which has been mined and which Matalusa's brother has died for, if you don't know that that's crucial for making mobile phones, a lot of the technological stuff in the second half of the film doesn't make a great deal of sense. And even if, like me, you do know that Coltan does that, it still doesn't make a great deal of sense. I mean, oh, wow. Neptune Frost is an experience. 
it's certainly an experience. It's something which has a lot of things on its mind. It's got a lot of ways of saying those things. All the themes, all the ideas, all the visuals that this film has, there's so many of them that something is probably going to hit with you. But it's a bizarre experience to sit through. It really, really is. And yeah, it's weird. This is almost certainly not going to be at the cinemas by the time this comes out. It was given a very, very limited release. I think The Watershed of Bristol was one of a handful of cinemas which was actually showing this cinematically. But no doubt it will soon be available on streaming. And if it is, you might well get something out of Neptune Frost. But be aware, this is very, very strange, very surreal. So much of the plot points are given through music. It may as well be an opera. And yeah, it's an experience. So Neptune Frost is a bizarre, intriguing meh. And lastly, in this episode, we come to the film Living, which is a remake of Akira Kurosawa's 1952 film Ikiru. It is adapted from the original screenplay for Ikiru, written by Akira Kurosawa, Shinobu Hashimoto, and Hideo Aguni, by Katsuo Ishiguro one of Britain's greatest living novelists, in my opinion. He wrote The Remains of the Day. He wrote Never Let Me Go. Wasn't actually involved in either of the screenplays for those films, but now he has decided to adapt this classic of Japanese cinema for a British audience and get the excellent South African director Oliver Hermanus to direct it. Oliver Hermanus has been submitted by South Africa a couple of times to the international feature race, or the foreign language Oscar race, as it was known when he submitted. In 2011, it was the excellent and tragic queer film Beauty. And in 2019, it was the somewhat heartbreaking queer story Moffy about a closeted man going through national service. It was actually based on somebody's autobiography, which is kind of horrifying. But yes, Oliver Hermanus made these two excellent queer movies in South Africa. He's done a couple of others since, which didn't get international recognition. And now he has been brought to England in order to remake Ikiru from a script by Katsuo Ishiguro. And there's so many really fascinating people behind the scenes of this film and really fascinating people on screen as well. Because Living stars Bill Nye as a very straight-laced, very stiff upper lip, bowler-hatted, wearing civil servant in early 1950s London. He works for London County Council goes into work every day wearing his bowler hat, carrying his tightly furled umbrella, 
surrounded by people who look almost exactly like him, just having mountains of paperwork, looking at it, stamping it, moving on. A very dull existence. But one day, he has a doctor's appointment and is told he doesn't have long to live. It's never specifically said in living, but in Ikaro it was stomach cancer and it looks like some of the symptoms here in living. So he's got stomach cancer, he's got at most nine months to live, and he realised until this point he hasn't lived at all. So he tries to live in whatever life he has left. He scoves off from work and goes to a seaside resort where he bumps into a dissolute writer played by Tom Burke who takes him out for a night on the town with drinking, with gambling, with strip shows. But he's not really into that. So he goes back to London and happens to bump into Amy Lou Wood, who used to work with him in his office in the London County Council and gave it up because it was stifling her. I mean, surrounded by these bowler-hatted wearing men, the vivacious Amy Lee Wood really didn't fit in, so she quit. And now Bill Nye starts hanging out with Amy Lou Wood, this much younger woman who's got a much stronger lease on life, but he starts spending so much time with Amy Lou Wood that it starts creeping out Amy Lou Wood a little bit, and that starts falling apart as well. And back in the office, his absence is being noticed more and more by his co-workers, including Alex Sharp, who has only just started working at this office, and to some degree at the start of the film is kind of the audience avatar. It needs to be explained to Alex Sharp, therefore we get to know how this bureaucratic nightmare, I mean, this kind of Brazil-esque pile of paperwork functions what it's supposed to do. And everybody starts wondering what's going on because Bill Nye hasn't told anybody, not even his own son who's living with him and his daughter-in-law who's living with him. Nobody knows that he is dying. So his behaviour starts raising questions. And eventually, he will die. But before he does, he is determined to do something good with his life. And what he decides to do is, in a very poor, very deprived, very very bomb-damaged area of Stepney, he wants to make a park. There have been a group of women who have repeatedly tried to get a park built on this bomb site. And time and time again, the bureaucratic nightmare has turned them down. But now, Bill Nye is determined. He is going to get this park made, damn it. And he makes it his life's mission with whatever is left of his life. So, before I watched Living, a couple of weeks ago, I did watch Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. Because it's one of the Kurosawa films. I just had never got around to. I mean, I've watched most of the big ones. Rashomon is literally one of my favourite ever films. I think it's an all-time worldwide classic. 
Ran is great. Throne of Blood is great. Dozu Azala is great. But I'd never got around to Ikiru. So I watched it. And it is excellent. I can fully understand the high acclaim it has got. The funeral scene in Ikiru is one of the best written scenes I think I've ever come across. So yeah, Ikiru is a great, great film. Which is a little bit of a shame because even though Living is really, really good and I thoroughly recommend it, it's not as good as Ikiru. There are so, so few remakes which can even come close to, let alone surpass, the original, and Living doesn't. Part of that is the differences between Japanese culture in the 1950s and English culture in the 1950s. Because, as I said, what I consider the best scene, the pivotal scene in the film, is the lengthy, lengthy funeral scene in Ikiru. But the English don't do funerals like that. So when, you know, inevitably Bill Nye dies, there is a funeral, but it's a brief moment. And the things which happen in the funeral scene in Ikru happen elsewhere in Living. Like there's a big discussion between all of Bill Nye's colleagues at the office, just as there's a big discussion about all of Takashi Shimura's colleagues in Ikiru and discussing his life and legacy and and what this means going forward. In the Japanese version, that happens at the funeral. But in the English version, that happens on a commuter train. It's established at the beginning of the film that this little group of people you know, go from their commuter town in Surrey into London. And they share the same carriage every morning. So they start talking you know, what happened to Bill Nye? I mean, did he know he was dying? Why, why did he try so hard to get this little park made in Stepney? And they have these discussions, and it's a similar kind of approach to the Japanese version, but it doesn't quite have the same impact for me. And I also think some of the changes made to the characterizations were interesting. There isn't an audience avatar in Ikiru. I mean, Alex Sharp is introduced at the beginning of the film as this young person who it's his first day in the job. So things have to be explained to him. Not an equivalent in Ikiru, but giving a reaction to one of his colleagues that happens in Ikiru to this younger colleague is actually rather effective. And also the way that the other young person in the film, you know, this vivacious young woman played by Amy Lou Wood in Living, in the Japanese version, Ikiru, that equivalent character, Miki Odagiri, basically vanishes about two-thirds of the way through the film. She's just not in the film anymore. And I think that's by design, and I think that's effective. What Akira Kurosawa and his co-screenwriters wanted to do was you know, this big thing happens in the relationship between the dying old man and the young woman, and the young woman doesn't know how to deal with it, and therefore she's just not in the film anymore. And that's fine, but that's not what Katsuo Ishiguro and Oliver Hermanus did with Living, because Amy Lee Wood returns in the second half of the film, or the last third of the film, 
and actually starts a romantic relationship with this young colleague, Alex Sharp. It's long been a bugbear of mine, the tacton love interest. And Living is not the kind of film I expected there to be a tacton love interest. I mean, it's sweet and everything, but I don't really think it's necessary. But yeah, I mean, this young woman, Amy Lou Wood, does keep her position throughout the entirety of the film. And there is something there about you know, youth and relationship and trying to build something new from something so tragic. I can see that, but I don't quite think it was necessary. And there's nice little references to the original Japanese version. I mean, there is this night of debauchery with the dissolute writer played by Tom Burke in Living. And he goes to this seaside pier, uh, he goes gambling, he goes to a striptease show, that kind of thing. And the difference between a pachinko parlour in Japan and a pier and amusement arcade in England, I think that's very, very different. It's got two very distinct vibes. But it does provide something relevant because Bill Nye has one of those grabbing toy machines. And one of the things he tries to do is win a prize for his young companion. I mean, he goes back to the pair with Amy Lou Wood, and he tries to win a prize for Amy Lou Wood. And what he manages to win, or actually know what Amy Lou Wood herself manages to win, because you know, eventually she has a go herself, she manages to win a little wind-up clockwork bunny that sort of like hops along the table, which is a direct reference to, the, to Ikiru, which I thought was rather cute. But yeah, I mean, having a, a winning a toy bunny instead of playing pachinko, that gives off a different vibe. And there's also the use of music. There's a particular mournful song about you know the loss of youth and living life while you still can. In Japan, it's a song called Gondola no Uta. In Living, it's an old Scottish ballad called The Rowan Tree, which Bill Nye sings rather well. And again, it is this mournful story, this mournful song about living your life and embracing your youth. And it's it's all done very, very well. So, yeah, it's got lots of references. I mean, it's a pretty close remake of Ikiru with you know, minor changes here and there. But I think there are definitely aspects of this story which are done better in Ikiru. So I don't know what kind of response I would have had to Living if I hadn't seen Ikiru first. But Living is an outstanding film which does stand on its own. It's just Ikiru is a masterpiece. And I wouldn't say that Living is a masterpiece. But Ikaru manages to pull that off because of this lengthy funeral scene with all of these people, you know, quote-unquote, mourning this dead guy. But really, it's just an excuse to drink and chat with each other. And gradually, as these bureaucrats get more and more drunk on sake, they start making more and more outlandish statements. And it descends into a drunken argument, essentially, about this guy's legacy, which is 
kind of funny in and of itself. And then there's another scene later in the film, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful shot. It is a man standing up, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he sits down, and as he gradually sits down, he seems to be consumed by the piles and piles of paper which are on his desk, you know, this bureaucratic nightmare that he exists in. And the image of this man seemingly being swallowed up by his paperwork, I thought that was such a stunning image. And there isn't an equivalent image in Living. So, yeah, Ikiru is better, but Living is still very, very good, and I strongly recommend it. I mean, Bill Nye is fantastic. I mean, as soon as I heard about this project, I knew that Bill Nye would be fantastic in it. And he is. To the extent that I wouldn't be at all surprised if Bill Nye got a Best Actor nomination for this film. He is certainly in the running, according to GoldDarby.com. And yeah, I think Living is an excellent film, but it just can't quite live up to the original. It should still be in cinemas, and for me, Living is a very, very high meh. New Releases There's a very real possibility that I'll only be watching one cinematic film this week because it is one of those weeks where there's one gigantic release which everybody is running scared from. That is Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the latest entry into the gigantic and increasingly tiresome Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am honestly rather interested to see what they're going to do in the wake of the unfortunate passing of Chaswick Boseman. I haven't been paying much attention to the publicity. My guess is that Letitia Wright will be taking over as Black Panther, because that was kind of teased in the first one. But yeah, so it is a Marvel week, so everything else is running scared from it. And even the one new cinematic release, which is released and I do have access to, I'm not going to be seeing this week. Jafar Panahi has a new film out called No Bears, and I just love the determination of Jafar Panahi. It's been over a decade now since he's been banned from making films, and he's made four or five since. And his son has made an excellent film as well, Hit the Road. But this latest film, No Bears, is Jafar Panahi going to the borders of Iran, I think with Turkey, and shooting a film in the very remote regions of Iran, which don't necessarily care about whether this particular filmmaker has been banned from making films in Tehran. And yeah, it's sort of like a quasi-documentary, quasi-fictional film, very much like Taxi Tehran and to some degree Three Faces, but it looks like that kind of thing, with Jafar Panahi making a quote-unquote narrative feature about a dissident filmmaker named Jafar Panahi. So, yeah, it looks like breaking the fourth wall and that kind of stuff, which is very much what I appreciate about Jafar Panahi, and I do want to watch it. Just not this week, because... As I was talking about at the opening of this show with the Chinese film Return to Dust, in a couple of weeks' time, No Bears, this latest film from Jafar Panahi, is going to be part of the Discover strand 
at the Little Theatre. And therefore, thanks to the sponsorship that the Picture House chain have got with the Kia car company, I can watch it for free. So yeah, I can either watch it this week and pay something for it and you would get a review of it quickly. Or I can wait a couple of weeks and watch it for free. And since a f- new film from Jafar Panahi, you either know whether you want to watch a new film from Jafar Panahi now or not, it doesn't really matter whether I give a review out or not. So just to tell you, in case you didn't know, there is a new Jafar Panahi film out called No Bears. It will be released cinematically this week, but I will be reviewing it when I can see it for free in a couple of weeks. And the other cinematic release, or at least has been announced as being released cinematically, is a documentary called Retrograde, which at time of recording, I can't see any screenings of it where I can get to it. But it's one of those films I feel I kind of need to see because it looks like the kind of film that might end up as a documentary feature submission at the Oscars. It's the latest film from Matthew Heinemann, who is a documentarian I admire. He got Oscar nominated for Cartel Land and also did the excellent documentaries City of Ghosts and The First Way. Matthew Heinemann's thing is he tends to put himself in great danger filming stuff which could literally kill him, or filming people who could literally kill him. And that's kind of what he's done now. I mean, in what sounds like a really, really depressing documentary, Matthew Heinemann embedded himself in the Afghan military in the waning days of the US occupation of Afghanistan. Everybody knew that the transition was happening, so Matthew Heinemann went to Afghanistan and started filming the Afghan army and the US army soldiers who had been training them. I mean, obviously at the time, nobody knew the absolute disaster the US withdrawal of Afghanistan would be and the instant takeover by the Taliban. But Matthew Heinemann tried to film this transition. And in retrospect, he probably filmed the last stretches of democracy in Afghanistan. But uh, yeah, George W. Bush really, really fucked that one up, didn't he? He just went in with absolutely no plan, no idea, no understanding of how Afghan culture and society worked, tried to fix it, and spectacularly failed. And Afghanis, particularly Afghan women, have been living with the consequences ever since, particularly for the last 18 months or so. So. Yeah, Retrograde is probably going to be very, very depressing, but it's probably also going to be rather award-baity, and it's from a director I respect, so I probably do feel the need to watch Retrograde, although at time of recording, I don't think I'll be able to watch it cinematically, so that stays on the list, which means that in all likelihood, the only cinema trip I'll be making this week is to watch Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And since it seems silly to release a podcast with just one review in it, I will probably add in some of the streaming films I've watched, whether that be the next episode or put in a streaming film between then, because I've already got quite a few films 
I've watched on streaming for my next streaming episode. We shall have to see, but there'll probably be a mixed episode coming up fairly shortly. We'll see. have to see how that goes. Also released this week, there's lots of things on Netflix. There is the new animated feature from Cartoon Saloon, my favourite animation company. They did The Breadwinner, they did Wolf Walkers, they did The Secrets of Cows, they did Song of the Sea. They are a fantastic company and I love everything they do. And their latest film, My Father's Dragon, is being released onto Netflix. It is directed by Nora Twomey, whose last feature-length film was the fantastic The Breadwinner. I believe it's based on a children's book about a young boy who uncovers a dragon when he is forced to travel to an island off Ireland. So yeah, a new film from Cartoon Saloon is definitely something to be excited about, and that is being released onto Netflix this week. As is, as ever, a couple of documentaries, the first of which is called Capturing the Killer Nurse. And this is a documentary which deals with the real-life story of the case which got turned into the film The Good Nurse, directed by Tobias Lindholm, starring Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain, which I have seen and will be reviewed in the next streaming episode. It's pretty good. For what it is, it's pretty good. But Netflix have also done a documentary which deals with the real-life case called Capturing the Killer Nurse, so I may as well watch that as well. There's another Netflix documentary called Is That Black Enough For You? which deals with the history of black cinema, or African-American cinema, mostly concentrating on the 1970s, and the transition from the dignified performances of somebody like Sidney Poitier to the mildly trashy black exploitation movies of things like Shaft and Superfly and all that kind of stuff, and dealing with how cinema dealt with this influx of creative black people. So, yeah, that sounds really cool, and it has been added to the list. Also released onto Netflix this week is something which I might get to if I feel in the need for something very saccharine and comforting. Netflix have started releasing their Christmas movie catalogue. They've got into the hallmark arenas of sentimental, mildly trashy Christmas movies. And the first one of that ilk this year is Falling for Christmas which stars Lindsay Lohan and judging by the trailer and the synopsis looks like a Christmas themed ripoff of Overboard the Goldie Horn film from the 80s which got remade recently with Eugenio Derbeth Lindsay Lohan is an obnoxious socialite who goes on a skiing holiday to celebrate her engagement to an equally facetious man but has a skiing accident knocks her head and gets amnesia and wouldn't you know it the hunky owner of the cabin who is widowed with an adorable moppet daughter takes her in and surely sparks won't fly romantically at christmas 
with this amnesiac woman and this hunky but determinedly single man. I mean, let's face it, it's a formula, but it's a formula that works, and if I feel the need for something brainless, I will probably watch Falling for Christmas, but I still have lots and lots of Oscar Beatty type stuff to get today. It's on the list, but we'll have to see if I get to Falling for Christmas. There's another film this week. Actually, there's two Sky Cinema films this week, but one so late in the week that I'm going to be talking about in the next episode. The first Sky Cinema original is called Poker Face, and it's actually directed by Russell Crowe. He doesn't actually direct all that often, but this one sounds kind of interesting. It also stars Russell Crowe as a billionaire who brings all his rich friends together to his swanky house for a very high-stakes poker game. And one of the things that is at stake is all the personal secrets that all his friends and acquaintances who he's playing poker with have. So he has an agenda to try and expose these secrets that his friends have and then there's a home invasion with heavily armed people trying to get into this billionaire's house. Whether that was planned or not, I'm not entirely sure judging by the trailer, but it looks kind of crazy and it's available for free on my Skybox. So I may as well check out the Russell Crowe directed film, Poker Face. And also released this week onto Apple TV Plus is a film called Spirited, which is yet another version of A Christmas Carol. This one is a musical, and it's also done from the ghost's point of view, which is an interesting take, but judging by the trailer, I'm not sure how good this film is going to be. It looks kind of awful. But Will Ferrell plays a trainee ghost of Christmas past, because in this version, the ghosts are part of this whole corporate structure. So this inexperienced ghost of Christmas present is sent to Earth to do, you know, the Scrooge thing with a cold-hearted executive played by Ryan Reynolds, who, judging by the trailer, knows exactly what's happening to him, has read A Christmas Carol, has seen all the multitude of versions of Scrooge, Scrooge Duh, with Bill Murray, which I still have a soft spot for, but yeah. So yeah, it looks like a bit of fourth wall breaking, a bit of a, a different angle to take, with Ryan Reynolds knowing what is happening to him and not going for it at all, and also Will Ferrell being attracted to Ryan Reynolds' personal assistant, played by Octavia Spencer. So. Yeah, a loose adaptation of A Christmas Carol, but the fact it's got a somewhat trashy approach, judging by the trailer, Will Ferrell is more missed than hit, as far as I'm concerned, in my personal taste. So, yeah, Spirited is out, but I'm not in any great rush to see it. But I'll add it to the list, and if I get around to it, you will hear a review of it. But what is going to be in the next cinematic edition is Black Panther Wakanda Forever, and since it's the only cinematic film out, I might throw in some streaming films as well and give it an old-school feel as I release it. 
but yeah we'll have to figure out how to present it but the next cinematic trip will be black panther wakanda forever the to watch list my to watch list is mostly made up of oscar baity films of various degrees but I also have a couple of new additions to the VOD releases which I have downloaded onto my tablet. I have ticked off the last batch of stuff I downloaded onto my tablet. The excellent ghost story here before, the micro-budget horror comedy Val, and the Clarks-esque American indie summer issues all of which will be reviewed in the next episode, or the next streaming episode. And they have been replaced on my tablet by another couple of VOD releases. Firstly, we have the Australian-slash-Macedonian film You Won't Be Alone. It was directed by an Australian of North Macedonian heritage, or perhaps he's a North Macedonian director who's living in Australia, I'm not sure exactly which. But either way, he made this psychological horror movie in the Macedonian language with a surprisingly impressive international cast. It's about a witch who inhabits various people's bodies, and these people, these women who this witch inhabits, at various times are the Kiwi actress Alice Englert, the Swedish actress Numi Rapace, and the Romanian actress Anna Maria Marinka. So that sounds fascinating, and I always wanted to check this out. It was always on the list. I was hoping it would show up on Peacock here in the UK, because that's how it was distributed in the US. But that doesn't seem to have happened, and I've grown tired of waiting, and I've just bought myself a rental of it. And this has been accelerated by the fact that Australia have actually submitted this to the International Feature Oscar, which I always thought was a somewhat likely outcome, given that it is a film in Macedonian, but produced in Australia. So, yes, You Won't Be Alone went to the top of the list with that announcement, that somewhat expected announcement, and I have bought myself a rental of it, and You Won't Be Alone will be reviewed shortly. And the other VOD release that I downloaded onto my tablet, I did just because it sounds fun. It's a Japanese film called Baby Assassins, about two high school girls who share a flat with each other. They're a typical odd couple, you know, one's messy, one's organised, one's vivacious, one's more reserved. They get on each other's nerves. And it just so happens that they are also assassins and high school girls, and they also have muck jobs. So, yeah, that sounds like it could be a lot of fun, and I have downloaded Baby Assassins onto my tablet. And the majority of the rest of the films I've got have, as I said, some Oscar buzz about them. On Netflix, we have the high-prestige German submission to the International Feature Oscar, All Quiet on the Western Front, a German version of, let's face it, a German novel, and the 1930s American version is one of the best anti-war films ever, so 
yeah, now it's actually being done in German. And a little bit more obscure, we also have the Indonesian Oscar submission, which is available on Netflix called Missing Home, where an elderly couple fake the fact they're getting a divorce to force their estranged children back home. On Apple TV+, Plus, we have the rather intriguing-sounding film Causeway, which has quite a bit of Oscar buzz. It stars Jennifer Lawrence as a military veteran who is suffering from a traumatic brain injury and tries to figure out her life and fit in back into the civilian world back in New Orleans and possibly is helped along that way by her relationship with a local mechanic played by Brian Tyree Henry. So yeah, Causeway sounds really cool. It's available on Apple TV Plus and does have some Oscar buzz about it. As does another Apple TV Plus film, which I'm not so keen on checking out. Based on a rather idiotic true story, The Greatest Beer Run Ever is directed by Peter Farrelly, who did Green Book, and stars Zac Efron as a real-life person who went to the Vietnam War in order to hand out a beer to all the soldiers who had volunteered from his neighbourhood. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a strange enough premise already, but then the fact that it's Peter Farrelly doing it and what he did with Green Book. Yeah, I'm not so keen on The Greatest Beer Run ever, but it does have some Oscar buzz about it, so I'd better check it off the list. On Amazon Prime Video, there are another couple of Oscar buzzy films available. Argentina's submission to the international... Oscar race has somehow ended up being distributed by Amazon Prime. It's called Argentina 1985 and is about the lawyers who'd tried to bring the recently deposed military junta to justice in 1985. They actually tried to find a legal solution to the military junta which Argentina had just come out of and That sounds like it might be kind of fascinating, and it's got a decent cast. So yeah, Argentina 1985 is available on Amazon Prime, and I will be checking that out. As I will, My Policeman, which is also available on Amazon Prime, about a lavender marriage in the 1960s between a policeman and a young woman, but the policeman is closeted, and decades later in the present day, the three people at the centre of this love triangle reunite and secrets and desires from the past start bubbling up again. Sounds kind of interesting. I mean, I'm a little surprised that Harry Styles is the lead of that one. So, yeah, how that's going to work out, I don't know. But My Policeman has a bit of Oscar buzz about it, so I'll be checking that out on Amazon Prime. Just for fun, and just because I can watch it on my Skybox, the Comedy Central original movie, Cursed Friends, is added to the list. There's a chance I'll be able to watch that on Thursday night while I'm waiting for the Thursday night American football to start. That often happens that I find myself watching a movie before the American football starts, and Cursed Friends might well be the selection this coming Thursday. About a group of friends who reunite in their 30s, including people like Will Arnett, and they realise that a children's game they played, you know, filling out a little exercise book with all their dreams and hopes 
for the future, but their dreams and hopes when they were 11 don't work in the modern day, and a mischievous witch comes by and makes all those wishes come true. So how do you deal with that? Could be very, very silly, but it could also be fun. So yes, Cursed Friends, since I can just watch it on my skybox, is on the list. And surrounded by all these Oscar Beatty type films, the other film that I want to keep on the list just because it's fun is the Disney Plus released film Rosaline, which stars Caitlin Deaver as Romeo's ex, who is in the original Shakespeare play. But this is a Rosaline who wants to break up Romeo and Juliet. And it's being played by Caitlin Deaver, who is an actress I absolutely love. And it's being directed by Karen Mayne, who did the excellent indie film Yes, God, Yes. So yeah, a combination of really talented people in front of and behind the camera and a really interesting premise. So yes, I do want to check out Rosalind, even though I have many more Oscar Beatty priorities before then. So yeah, that is my current to-watch list. And as I said, I've got plenty of things to fill up the next streaming episode. As I mentioned, I've got the VOD films here before Val and Summer Issues. I also checked off the mildly Oscar Beatty Apple TV Plus film Raymond and Ray. And on Netflix, I also ticked off the excellent animation directed by Henry Selick and produced by Jordan Peele, Wendell and Wilde. I really like that one. And I also checked off The Good Nurse, the Tobias Lindholm directed film starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne about a real life nurse who killed people in the ICU, killed possibly over a hundred people, but was convicted of several of them. And as I mentioned a bit earlier, there is a documentary about that case also being released onto Netflix this week. So yeah, I might wait to release this streaming episode until I can watch that documentary so I can do the fictional version and the documentary version at the same time. But However, it turns out that is among the things which will be in the next streaming episode. And I'm still watching lots and lots of films at the Film Bath Festival, so my recording schedule is difficult to figure out as is. So the next streaming episode is likely to be quite late and quite long, but we'll have to see how everything goes. But for right now, that's all I've got to say in this particular episode. So all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!